Chapter 3, Part 1 of The Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 2, by William Blackstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roy Haynes. Incorporeal Hereditaments. Part 1. An incorporeal hereditament is a right issuing out of a thing corporate, whether real or personal, or concerning, or annexed to, or exercisable within the same. It is not the thing corporate itself which may consist in lands, houses, jewels, or the like, but something collateral thereto, as a rent issuing out of those lands or houses, or an office relating to those jewels. In short, as the logicians speak, corporeal hereditaments are the substance which may always be seen, always handled. Incorporeal hereditaments are but a sort of accidents, which inhere in and are supported by that substance, and may belong or not belong to it, without any visible alteration therein. Their existence is merely an idea, an abstracted contemplation, though their effects and profits may be frequently objects of our bodily senses. And indeed, if we would fix a clear notion of an incorporeal hereditament, we must be careful not to confound together the profits produced and the thing, or hereditament, which produces them. An annuity, for instance, is an incorporeal hereditament, for though the money, which is the fruit or product of this annuity, is doubtless of a corporeal nature, yet the annuity itself, which produces that money, is a thing invisible, has only a mental existence, and cannot be delivered over from hand to hand. So tithes, if we consider the produce of them, as the tenth sheaf or tenth lamb, seem to be completely corporeal. Yet, they are indeed incorporeal hereditaments, for they, being merely a contingent right, collateral to or issuing out of lands, can never be the object of sense. They are neither capable of being shown to the eye, nor of being delivered into bodily possession. Incorporeal hereditaments are principally of ten sorts, advowsons, tithes, commons, ways, offices, dignities, franchises, carides or pensions, annuities, and rents. Advowson is the right of presentation to a church or ecclesiastical benefice. Advowson, advocatio, signifies incliatelem ricipere, the taking into protection, and therefore is synonymous with patronage, patronatus, and he who has the right of advowson is called the patron of the church. For when lords of manors first built churches on their own demesnes and appointed the tithes of those manors to be paid to the officiating ministers, which before were given to the clergy in common, from whence was formerly mentioned 
arose the division of parishes, the Lord, who thus built the church and endowed it with glebe or land, had of common right a power annexed to nominating such a minister as he pleased, provided he were canonically qualified, to officiate in that church of which he was the founder, endower, maintainer, or, in one word, the patron. This instance of an advowson will completely illustrate the nature of an incorporeal hereditament. It is not itself the bodily possession of the church and its appendages, but it is a right to give some other man a title to such bodily possession. The advowson is the object of neither the sight nor the touch, and yet it perpetually exists in the mind's eye and in contemplation of the law. It cannot be delivered from man to man by any visible bodily transfer, nor can corporal possession be had of it. If the patron takes corporal possession of the church, the churchyard, the glebe, or the like, he intrudes on another man's property, for to these the parson has an exclusive right. The patronage can therefore be only conveyed by operation of law, by verbal grant, either oral or written, which is a kind of invisible mental transfer, and being so vested, it lies dormant and unnoticed, till occasion calls it forth, when it produces a visible corporeal fruit by entitling some clerk whom the patron shall please to nominate to enter and receive bodily possession of the lands and tenements of the church. Advousins are either avousins appendant or avousins in gross. Lords of manors, being originally the only founders and, of course, the only patrons of churches, the right of patronage or presentation, so long as it continues annexed to the possession of the manor, as some have done from the foundation of the church to this day, is called an avousin appendant and it will pass or be conveyed together with the manor as incident and appendant thereto by a grant of the manor only, without adding any other words. But where the property of the avowson has been once separated from the property of the manor by legal conveyance, it is called an avowson in gross or at large, and never can be appendant any more but it is for the future annexed to the person of its owner and not to his manor or lands. Avousins are also either presentative, collative, or donative. An advousin presentative is where the patron hath a right of presentation to the bishop or ordinary, and moreover to demand of him to institute his clerk if he find him canonically qualified and this is the most usual advowson. An advowson collative is where the bishop and patron are one and the same person, in which case the bishop cannot present to himself, but he does, by the one act of collation or conferring the benefice, the whole that is done in common cases by both presentation and institution. An advowson donative is when the king or any subject by his license 
doth found a church or chapel, and ordains that it shall be merely in the gift or disposal of the patron, subject to his visitation only, and not to that of the ordinary, and vested absolutely in the clerk by the patron's deed of donation, without presentation, institution, or induction. This is said to have been anciently the only way of conferring ecclesiastical benefices in England, the method of institution by the bishop not being established more early than the time of Archbishop Becket in the reign of Henry II. And therefore, though Pope Alexander III, in a letter to Becket, severely inveighs against the prava consuetudo, as he calls it, of investiture conferred by the patron only, this, however, shows what was then the common usage. Others contend that the claim of the bishops to institution is as old as the first planting of Christianity in this island, and in proof of it, they allege a letter from the English nobility to the Pope in the reign of Henry III, recorded by Matthew Paris, which speaks of presentation to the bishop as a thing immemorial. The truth seems to be that, where the benefice was to be conferred on a mere layman, he was first presented to the bishop in order to receive ordination, who was at liberty to examine and refuse him. But where the clerk was already in orders, the living was usually vested in him by the sole donation of the patron. Till about the middle of the 12th century, when the pope and his bishops endeavored to introduce a kind of feudal dominion over ecclesiastical benefices and, in consequence of that, began to claim and exercise the right of institution universally as a species of spiritual investiture. However this may be, if, as the law now stands, the true patron once waives this privilege of donation and presents to the bishop, and his clerk is admitted and instituted, the advowson is now become forever presentative, and shall never be donative any more. For these exceptions to general rules and common right are ever looked upon by the law in an unfavorable view, and construed as strictly as possible. If, therefore, the patron, in whom such peculiar right resides, does once give up that right, the law which loves uniformity, will interpret it to be done with an intention of giving it up forever, and will thereupon reduce it to the standard of other ecclesiastical livings. A second species of incorporeal hereditaments is that of tithes, which are defined to be the tenth part of the increase yearly arising and renewing from the profits of lands, the stock upon lands, and the personal industry of the inhabitants the first species being usually called predial, as of corn, grass, hops, and wood, the second mixed, as of wool, milk, pigs, etc., consisting of natural products, but nurtured and preserved in part by the care of man, and of these the tenth must be paid in gross, the third personal, as of manual occupations, trades, fisheries, and the like, and of these only the tenth part of the clear gains and profits is due. 
It is not to be expected from the nature of these general commentaries that I should particularly specify what things are tithable and what not, the time when or the manner and proportion in which tithes are usually due. For this, I must refer to such authors as have treated the matter in detail, and shall only observe that, in general, tithes are to be paid for everything that yields an annual increase, as corn, hay, fruit, cattle, poultry, and the like, but not for anything that is of substance of the earth, or is not an, of an annual increase, as stone, lime, chalk, and the like nor for creatures that are of a wild nature, or ferai naturai, as deer, hawks, etc., whose increase, so as to profit the owner, is not annual, but casual. It will rather be our business to consider, one, the original of the right of tithes, two, in whom that right at present subsists, three, who may be discharged either totally or in part, from paying them. As to their original, I will not put the title of the clergy to tithes upon any divine right, though such a right certainly commenced, and I believe certainly ceased, with the Jewish theocracy. Yet, an honorable and competent maintenance for the ministers of the gospel is, undoubtedly, jure divino, whatever the particular mode of that maintenance may be. For, Besides the positive precepts of the New Testament, natural reason will tell us that an order of men who are separated from the world and excluded from other lucrative professions for the sake of the rest of mankind have a right to be furnished with the necessities, conveniences, and modern enjoyments of life at their expense for whose benefit they forego the usual means of providing them. Accordingly, all municipal laws have provided a liberal and decent maintenance for their national priests or clergy. Ours, in particular, have established this of tithes, probably in imitation of the Jewish law, and perhaps, considering the degenerate state of the world in general, it may be more beneficial to the English clergy to found their title on the law of the land than upon any divine right whatsoever unacknowledged and unsupported by temporal sanctions. We cannot precisely ascertain the time when tithes were first introduced into this country. Possibly, they were contemporary with the planting of Christianity among the Saxons by Augustine the monk about the end of the 6th century. But the first mention of them, which I have met with in any written English law, is in a constitutional degree made in a synod held A.D. 786, wherein the payment of tithes in general is strongly enjoined. This canon or decree, which at first bound not the laity, was effectually confirmed by two kingdoms of the Heptarchy, in their parliamentary conventions of estates respectively, consisting of the kings of Mercia and Northumberland, the bishops, dukes, senators, and the people which was a few years later than the time that Charlemagne established the payment of them in France, and made that famous division of them into four parts, one to maintain the edifice of the church, the second to support the poor, the third the bishop, and the fourth the parochial clergy.
The next authentic mention of them is in the Foedus Eduardi et Gutruni, or the laws agreed upon by King Guthrun the Dane and Alfred and his son Edward the Elder, successive kings of England, about the year 900. This was a kind of treaty between those monarchs, which may be found at large in the Anglo-Saxon laws, wherein it was necessary, as Guthrun was a pagan, to provide for the subsistence of the Christian clergy under his dominion. And accordingly, we find the payment of tithes not only enjoined, but a penalty added upon non-observance, which law is seconded by those of Athelstan about the year 930. And this is as much as can certainly be traced out with regard to their legal original. 2. We are next to consider the persons to whom they are due, and upon their first introduction, as hath formerly been observed, Though every man was obliged to pay tithes in general, yet he might give them to whatever priest he pleased, which were called arbitrary consecrations of tithes. Or he might pay them into the hands of the bishop, who distributed among his diocese and clergy the revenues of the church, which were then in common. But when dioceses were divided into parishes, the tithes of each parish were allotted to its own particular minister first by common consent, or the appointments of lords of manors, and afterwards by the written law of the land. However, arbitrary consecrations of tithes took place again afterwards, and became in general use till the time of King John, which was probably owing to the intrigues of the regular clergy or monks of the Benedictine and other rules under Archbishop Dunstan and his successors who endeavored to wean the people from paying their dues to the secular or parochial clergy, a much more valuable set of men themselves, and were then in hopes to have drawn, by sanctimonious pretense to extraordinary purity of life, all ecclesiastical profits to the coffers of their own societies. And this will naturally enough account for the number and riches of the monasteries and religious houses which were founded in those days and which were frequently endowed with tithes. For a layman who was obliged to pay his tithe somewhere might think it good policy to erect an abbey and there pay them to his own monks or grant them to some abbey already erected. Since for this dotation, which really cost the patron little or nothing, he might, according to the superstition of the times, have masses forever sung for his soul. But, in process of years, the income of the poor laborious parish priests, being scandalously reduced by these arbitrary consecrations of tithes, it was remedied by Pope Innocent III about the year 1200 in decretial epistle, sent to the Archbishop of Canterbury and dated from the Palace of Lateran, which has occasioned Sir Henry Hobart and others to mistake it for a decree of the Council of Lateran held A.D. 1179, which only prohibited what was called the infudation of tithes or their being granted to mere laymen. 
whereas this letter of Pope Innocent to the Archbishop enjoined the payment of tithes to the parsons of the respective parishes where every man inhabited, agreeable to what was afterwards directed by the same Pope in other countries. This epistle, says Sir Edward Coke, bound not the lay subjects of this realm, but, by being reasonable and just, and, he might have added, being correspondent to the ancient law, it was allowed of, and so became lex terre. This put an effectual stop to all the arbitrary consecrations of tithes, except some footsteps which still continue in those portions of tithes which the parson of one parish hath, though rarely, a right to claim in another, for it is now universally held that tithes are due of common right to the parson of the parish unless there be a special exemption. This parson of the parish, we have formerly seen, may be either the actual incumbent or else the appropriator of the benefice, appropriations being a method of endowing monasteries, which seems to have been devised by the regular clergy by way of substitution to arbitrary consecrations of tithes. End of chapter 3, part 1